here we are. Is it week five in our series? Um, today we will be um, looking at the church from exile to Emmanuel. From exile to Emmanuel. Now, for those of you who may have purchased the books and are trying to follow through, you may notice that this section doesn't exist. And this is um, this is the Lord's doing, we might say. <laughs> but actually, it's it's more of a kind of an editorial decision. We decided that um, there's such an important part of the exile that we don't want to kind of skip over it and lose some of the the teaching points that you can kind of touch on. And so we've kind of looked at that point between exile, um, because it goes from exile to eternity, but the exile to Emmanuel in and of itself has so much, I think, richness for us to learn from in the church. And so hopefully, as you'll see through today, um, we are glad that we've kind of paused before we jump into Christ, and um, next week with Rob, looking at Christ from eternity, now the church proper, the church in its fullest fledged sense, leading into, I guess, what we saw in Revelation 7, the church in its fullest manifestation, its perfect manifestation. Um, So we're going to take our time to go through there and build ourselves up to that. But let me um, pray, and um, again, um, ask that the Lord guide us as we we go through his word. Amen. So Lord, we are thankful. Thankful because we are here. A new week, new month. Lord God, our lives continue. So we are thankful that our hope, dear Lord, being in you means that, Lord God, we are expectant that you will do good things, great things, Lord God, amongst us. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Father, that in this time of, um, I guess, severe economic pressure on households and individuals, dear Lord God, and even whole nations, in ways, dear Lord God, that is really encouraging for them. But Lord God, help us, wherever we may be, to engage with your word in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I've got two kind of key scriptures, but our our real scripture today, if you want to keep a hand in it, is going to be Nehemiah 8. Um, But we'll get to that in a little while, because as we've been doing for this series, is that we want to kind of highlight what the story is so far, because again, this is a biblical theology. We're trying to follow the pattern of the church, and as such... We're going to see how the church develops. So we're going to kind of go to the signposts. Obviously, we're not going to go through every text of the Bible, but we're going to try and look at it. So last week, we, we, we ended up at Sinai. So the exodus and the, you know, the, the judgment on, on Egypt, the exodus has happened, and the people have been brought to exactly where Moses initially had planned that they would come to. Because obviously, the promised land kind of comes after this. But initially, what Moses requests of Pharaoh is just to go to worship the Lord. And that is accomplished at Sinai. And obviously, with all the, the spectacular 
dimensions to that. You know, the thunder, the voice of God, all these things that obviously made that a unique experience. And obviously we looked at Hebrews and said, how do the church compare to that? Are we to expect, um, you know, does Sinai become a model for us? And, And obviously the writer of Hebrews believes, no, because it's not mere physical encounter that we're looking for, but true spiritual engagement with the church. In other words, that we engage in faith, in being in the presence of God, and not being fearful. But then, that was never going to be the end of the story, was it? We then... Moses then goes through 40 years of the wilderness experience. Initially, they were going to go into the land, but obviously the people were fearful. How can we take over this land? These people are better than us and stronger than us and all the rest of it, and more established than us. And it led to 40 years of wandering until a new generation was rose up. And I guess you could say what is modernly called the Joshua generation. And then we come to the book of Joshua, Because Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, Moses takes them right up to the point of being in the land. But it is not Moses that brings them into the land. It is Joshua. So we have Joshua and the conquest of Canaan. Again, these are hard, these are particularly hard books, especially Joshua. How do we live with the, the, the extermination of all the people? How do we justify that? Well, we will see that really it's about what God requires and it's not about looking at it as being inconsistent with how, I guess, modern armies today take over other nations. In other words, God has a special request that this land be vacated to be a land of worship. And that's the most important part to, exp- to understand about the book of Joshua. That's his temple. It's his land, it's his place where the people that remain in it glorify God. And no ungodly thing would be allowed in it. And so when we understand it from that perspective, we suddenly realize it's not about which people are in there. In other words, oh, it's an ethnic thing, as most genocides are. It's actually a holy thing. Are the people in the land holy? And as we will see as we get to the exile, even Israel itself comes under the same judgment of God. Only holy people can come into the presence that God has designated. So anyway, we go back to the book of Joshua. So the conclusion of Exodus is now the promised land. We are going to enter in. So the challenge of settling the land is taken under the leadership of Joshua. A new generation of Israelites now have raised, obviously the children of those who initially came out of of Egypt. So after initial, initial success at removing inhabitants, progress starts to slow down. And that's what you see in the book of Joshua. You have these great battles and huge successes. You know, the, 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 the nations of, of the, the Canaanites, and obviously the Canaanites is a, is a collective term. Obviously, there were very different ethnic tribes living at the time, but Canaanites is used as a collective um, way of describing the inhabitants of the land. Come together, 
and there's huge success, but then things start to slow down and compromise starts to set in. Joshua then dies, leaving a lot of the original inhabitants in the land, which then sets up the next segment of the history, which is the book of Judges. It's also worth noting that the tabernacle is also built. Obviously, as they're traveling through the wilderness, the tabernacle is now built as a mobile, a mobile temple and becomes the place of worship for Israel. Other than the daily worship and the free will sacrifices, they are also to celebrate three major festivals. And, and they're all supposed to be, you know, so the three major set festivals, every Israelite, or every Israelite male in particular, was supposed to attend it to kind of establish their inclusion within the covenant. So we have the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, first, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, which is also called Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. But the major ones was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, obviously which is connected to the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which was also known as the, 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 the Feast of Booths. And this is, what, this is, again, what Moses leaves as instructions in Deuteronomy 16, 16 to 17. Three times a year, all your males shall be fit, prepare up before the Lord at the place that he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessings of the Lord, your God, that he has given you. So we can see today that even people still follow that in some respects. You know, I go to church Christmas and Easter. Do you know what I mean? But the reality is, is that that's the old covenant, my brother. We, we, we have a more consistent pattern now of making sure that we are established in the community of God. But generally, these were the times that they were required to be there. And obviously, given the vastness of the land, you can understand why, and obviously living in the times that they lived in, that maybe more than three times a year would be asking a lot. It's interesting that Israel comes under condemnation in the, in the passing comment of the prophet for not following these festivals, and we will see this in particular, the Feast of Booths. But we'll come to that a little bit later. We then come to the times of the judges. So Joshua has died, and, and no new leader comes up to replace him. There is no successor. And to that extent, the tribes now pretty much settle in the land obviously with all these other um, tribes that are going to be a temptation to them, living amongst them. And this is where things really come apart, especially for the tribal system. And Israel's descent into a pattern of compromise which leads them into foreign occupation. The time of oppression that leads to repent, you know. So what you find is that an army or a, or, or a foreign power will raise up, and because the tribes were quite scattered and, and somewhat weak, because obviously they were not all connected together, some foreign power will come and 
hold a certain amount of tribes, maybe even one tribe or two or three of them, and come and take over their land. And this leads to a time of repentance, oppression and then repentance. We're oppressed. We can't, ha- we can't take this anymore. Everything that we are gathering, we are gathering pretty much for somebody else. And now we need deliverance. And all of a sudden, you know, again, we know, we know this pattern because they get religion, right? We need God. And so they turn to God and Lord, please help us, please deliver us, just like the Israelites cried out under the bondage of Egypt. And the Lord would raise up a judge, and the judge would come and deliver them. And once the the, the deliverer has dispatched with the foreign power, they usher in a revival and a new period of peace. However, once the judge dies, a new period of laxity and compromise sets in only for the cycle to begin again. That's the easy way to sum up this, I guess you would say, 300 to 400 year period of the Judges. I mean, it says it itself, even in the book of Judges, verses, you know, chapter 2, 16 to 19. Let me read this. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But however, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So even the book of Judges, right at the very beginning, sums up the whole pattern. If you want to understand this book, read that chapter and you pretty much got it. And then all you have to do is read on to get the details. And the funny thing is, that as you actually go through the book of Judges, as we've, we have done in this, old, this, this church, is that you find that <coughs> not only do the people become more and more corrupt, the quality of the judges also deteriorates. You know, and again, one of the ways I sum this up is, <laughs> is the story of the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In other words, as the standard drops, even somebody who in our eyes wouldn't be, wouldn't be deemed as perfect becomes, well, at least he's somewhat better than everyone else around him. And so it is. That when we come to judges like Samson, who does not even want to deliver Israel, he somehow becomes a judge amongst them, and stands head and shoulders above them. It's not, a ref- and again, it's a reflection of the people as a whole, and not on the fact that God is basically compromising. That's all he has to work with. It is during this period that the pattern of regular worship falls away completely and gives way to an ancient form of moral relativism. 
What is relativism? It's any theory holding that the criteria of judgment are relative, varying with individuals and their environments. In other words, people just look around and, you know, what works for me? This works for me? I can, I can live with that? And there's no ethical standard which applies to all of them, and that's how they lived. And again, it's highlighted by the very last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No doubt the time of the judges was incredibly unstable. And so it wouldn't be long before the people suddenly realized, how are we going to get out of this pattern of instability? Well, the time of the kings now comes. And the Israelites grow weary of those loose affiliation of the tribes and the weakness that it brings to them in withstanding foreign powers. And though Moses anticipated that a king would eventually come to rule over the tribes, the request upsets the Lord and his prophet because it comes from a heart that wants to follow the nations as opposed to the Lord. We want to be like the other nations. And when you actually look at, and, and we will look at that in a minute in, in Deuteronomy 17, it says that like the other nations, there is a caveat to that that we need to understand. But this ultimately revealed that they did not trust, and this is, this is what was really lying in that heart, they did not trust the Lord to lead them through the issues of life. Give us big government so that we don't have to worry them anymore. So 1 Samuel 8, 4-6 brings us that request, and it says there, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This is what Moses actually said about the king, and it's worth looking at this, as I said we would. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he, inquire, shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Let's also look at a New Testament parallel to this of, I would say, servant leadership. Matthew 20, 25 to 28 says this, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's that caveat I told you about. This stands as a reminder that even though we may adopt similar titles and roles within the church, as we see within the society around us, it is not assimilated into the believing community unfiltered. We don't go, oh, well, you know, um, <laughs> Joe Biden goes around in a, in a massive car they call the beast. And so, therefore, our leader um, must go around in a massive car called the beast, you know. Uh, he needs, you know, a bulletproof car. And again, like the Pope, right? And it's this type of leadership that both Moses and Jesus says we're to avoid. There is, as far as I'm concerned, there is no getting away from this pattern of servant leadership. And as we see it, as we're thinking about the concept of the church and how it develops, this doesn't alter. In the world, but not of the world. And as we look at what it means to be a leader, it is to this we look to, and not merely the standards of the nations around us. So the monarchy begins with Saul. And it almost seems that Saul is given almost to spite the people. And to some extent, maybe again in God's wisdom, to give them exactly what they want. A, a, a king like all the other nations. And what we find in Saul, even though many people will comment, well, he kind of begins quite well. Well, yeah, he's a great military leader that gives him some initial success. But I would believe that even from the very beginning, what we see about Saul, you know, the, for those of you who are familiar with it, you know, Saul seems to be, is patterned. So even by, when he is selected, he is looking for his father's horses or cattle. And he can't find them. And so it's that, it's, it's that image of someone who is clueless. He's strong and big, but he doesn't have much else to offer. And so... They, so the Lord gives him a pagan king, a king patterned after the pagan nations around them. And this, I believe, is more graphically, is, is particularly graphically displayed as he slashes a yoke of oxen to pieces as a reminder of what will happen to anyone who does not follow his lead. So he hears about um, a tribe over beyond the Jordan that are now. Um, oppressed by a particular nation. And in order to motivate the people to come together as one nation, so remember, in the time of Judges, there was never this assembly of all the tribes together. He slashes this oxen to pieces and starts sending it to all the different tribe leaders and says, if you fail to show up with soldiers, this is what I'm going to do to you. I'm going to smash you to pieces. And the people greatly feared, and they came. And so they got this great motivator to basically bring them together to kind of 
give them what they want. We want to be a stronger nation. But it's not with, as it were, the Spirit of God. There's this great pattern without the, throughout the life of Saul about whether Saul is amongst the prophets. There's this great question mark. Was he really from God? However, it's not within Saul that we find God answers their prayers as they ought to have prayed. It is actually in the king that follows Saul, which is in David, who, again, is not even the ideal king as we know it. But anyway, he is more noble, more God-fearing, and even becomes a kind of a model king to the rest of his descendants. And we see this in the pattern of, Where can you, why can't you be not like my servant David, who you know, who feared me. So David establishes the kingdom by completely conquering the territories of the promised land. And this is the first time Israel has all the land is under David, under its control. So everything that was promised to Abraham finally gets fulfilled under David. And he establishes the full border of Israel. This allows him, because obviously he establishes peace, to now create a capital, a capital for all the Israelite tribes. And it makes it Jerusalem. And then he builds the temple there. And so the tabernacle that was dwelt in various places and maybe even hadn't really been established after just before the time of Saul when the Philistines obviously took away the, um, the ark. He now establishes temple worship. So we see a pattern of the church now develop again where the, it's no longer mobile worship wherever we go. It's now in the temple. And this is where... This is, and again, Moses speaks to this. And he says that when you come into the land and there is a place appointed for that worship, you are then to go to that place, wherever he will put it. And it does become Jerusalem. And now that, has, now that becomes the focal place. And, but this doesn't get built in the time of David. David creates the place in which that can actually exist. It is Solomon that builds that temple, and people come to worship there. But the story continues. Due to the sins of the kings, in particular of Solomon, and then eventually of Rehoboam, the nation divides into a southern territory called Judah and a northern territory called Israel. And it's to the northern kingdom we, we look to first. This territory was reigned by a, was, was under the reign of continuous succession of wicked kings. Not one of the kings would turn. And one of the ideas that we get as to why that happened was because there was never any real authentic worship there. The northern territories, and again, this is what I've alluded to before about the, the woman at the well who was located in that area and had questioned Jesus about the whole idea of challenging her 
to basically come to Jerusalem. He says, oh, I, I know what this guy, he's trying to evangelize me to tell me that I need to come back to Jerusalem in order to get back to Jerusalem. But I'm going to tell him about how, you know, I don't follow that kind of religion. You know, I'm, 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 I'm more authentically, ethically based where I am. And, you know, you guys can do what you want to do. But again, we live in those times still, right? You do you, I'll do me. But Jesus says, you don't even know what you're worshipping. Because the Northern Territories had developed a hybrid form of pagan, Yahwehistic worship. In other words, they, they said it was, we are worshipping Yahweh, but it is through these calves that we do so. And this is all basically to stop people from going to Jerusalem. We've now set up a separate territory, if people go to Jerusalem and worship there, then understanding the power of religion. You know, I mean, this is not a hard concept to understand. It's the whole way, you know, when you look at Europe, for example, and especially when it was under Roman Catholic rule, and the kings of Europe always had to go to the Pope in order to be affirmed as the new ruler. And so many Europeans saw that the fact that Pope did, you know, power didn't really reside in their own territories. That actually everything resided from Rome. And we saw obviously how that got divided up and King Henry, you know, Henry VIII wanted to basically do his own thing and realized that he wanted to centralize power for himself. And so it's that same thing. I'm going to set up my own religion in my own territory so that people don't have to go to Rome anymore. I don't have to appeal to Rome anymore. And that's exactly what Jeroboam does as he sets up the northern territories. He realizes that if religious power is centered in Judah, I am a goner. My kingdom won't last because I will still be seeking the authority of Judeans and a Judean high priest, or a Levite Judean high priest. This no doubt leads to the swift decline of the nation, and eventually is assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. And this is interesting, because again, we'll turn there to Isaiah 10, 5 to 11, and you don't have to, I mean, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read quickly because this is important. So Assyria becomes that, that, that tool in which God will now, as I said, will take them out of the land. If you're not worshipping me properly in the land, and again, remember, even though the temple was a focal point, the land in itself was supposed to be the kind of, I guess you could say, a kind of a new Eden. And God will not allow any false worship in it. He said, woe to the Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in, my ha in their hands is my fury against the godless nation. That's Israel. I send him, and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. That's speaking about the king of Assyria. And his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? 
It's not Hamath like Arped. It's not Syria like Damascus. These are former territories that he's conquered. So he says to Syria, you're going to be just like Damascus. I conquered Damascus. I'm going to do the same thing to Samaria. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images are greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Do you see that? Whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria? Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? It's a strange thing, isn't it? Even there it talks about the fact that the Lord is doing this to wipe them out, but even the king himself is saying, he's thinking, he, the Lord brings up the king's thoughts, he says, I'm doing it because I can conquer. But the Lord says, you're doing it because I want to take these people out of the land. So what, what, the, what the, the Israelites had done to the Canaanites, the Assyrians are now doing to the Israelites. Removing them. The issue is not ethnicity. The issue is holiness. It's not about, well, I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm, 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 I'm from Abraham's tribe, so therefore I have a right to the land. No, the issue always was Holiness. Holiness keeps you in the land. And without holiness, you cannot stay in the land. Then we come to Judah. Judah in the southern territories has a much better track record of kings, but it cannot escape the judgment of God as the monarchy and the people move further and further away from God. So even though they maintain orthodox worship, this also becomes a form of idolatry that does not connect them to the Lord. So in other words, they go into the temple, and again, Jeremiah 7 is a great example of this, this, this worshipping of the temple, this focal point in the temple where, again, it's not like as if the temple isn't important as a place of their worship, but it doesn't connect them with God anymore. You make sacrifices to me, but I don't feel it. You bring gifts, your heart's not in it. And so we see that idolatry is not just about I'm actually worshipping another god. But idolatry is a heart that doesn't place him at the centre. And that's, again, a warning for us as well. Where we can feel that I'm so rooted in orthodoxy that I cannot possibly be like the pagan nations or the, the people who worship other gods. But then the idolatry and the spirit of idolatry can rise anywhere. Let's turn to our first text today, Jeremiah 29. We want to read this at length because, again, it's important. So this is the letter that Jeremiah writes when Babylon's come. So a And Jeremiah, the prophet at the time, writes this letter to them. And it's, again, it's an important letter because it brings us clarity as to what happens to God's church and how the perspective now changes. 
the place of safety that was in the land, God now has to make somewhere else in order to preserve his church, in order to preserve his remnant. This is what he says. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the survivors. Parted from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elias, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will, call, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will, feel, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place. Kingsmen, behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence. And I will make them like vile figs that are rotten, that cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence. I will make them a horror to all the kings of the earth to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my word, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my, prophets, by my servants to prophets. But you did, would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have done an outrageous thing in, Jerusalem, in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbors' wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. Stop there. See, that focus has changed. The promised land isn't going to work anymore. 
And God's provision has now moved and said, to those in Babylon, you're safe. To those who are in the land now, problems. It is in Babylon that you have to find safety. And the lying prophets that I keep on telling you, no, 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 we're going to defeat Nebuchadnezzar somehow and we're going to get back to the land. He says, those guys are deceiving you. Today we have lying prophets the same way who will tell us that the church is not where you think it is. That's not the place of safety. It's somewhere else. But the Lord had made a provision for them in Babylon. And though you were not worthy to be in the land, yet I will restore your hope. I guess you would say, in the ark of Babylon. Seek its welfare, because that, by seeking its welfare, you seek your own, and you will thrive. So this is a strange twist in the biblical narrative. As the place of idolatry, Babylon now becomes the place of safety for the people of God. The most unlikeliest of places now becomes the place of safety. And those who stay in Judah will be outside of the Lord's protection. Thus goes Judah into exile. But I now want us to focus, and again, we'll go to our key text today, Nehemiah 8, of what happens after that 70 years. Now that Jeremiah prophesied 70 years, and people do go back. Not all of them, but a few of them go back. With Ezra, and we read about that, obviously, in, the, in what we call the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets. But in particular, I want us to focus on Nehemiah 8 because I think there we learn something about the church and we start to see the formation of the church develop from that which we see in Sinai in the temple worship and now to something which, as we look at Nehemiah 8, go, hey, that looks like church, proper. So let's turn there and we will read that chapter in its entirety. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses and the Lord had commanded, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate until midday in the presence of the men and women, and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mataniah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishal, Machaljai, Hashan, 
Hashban Hanana, Zechariah, Mishalom, and on the left, and on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Banai, Shariah, Jamiah, Akub, Shabafiah, Hudiah, Messiah, Kelitai, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor of Israel, governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people this day is holy to the Lord your God do not mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law then he said to them go your way eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses, all of the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feasts of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive myrtle palms, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts, and in their courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, or Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. There was great rejoicing, and the day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So this is the word of God. Let me make a few observations about Nehemiah 8, because again, we can't unpack that fully. So what we notice about the text is how we find the assembly of God's people has evolved, as I said, to something we now find familiar than what we saw at Sinai. Notice that it's not just about the main teaching, but also the small groups where the application is given. So all those names that you, you know, I endeavored to pronounce. 
where all the other teachers, they're the, the leaders, they're the, the, I guess you would say the cell group leaders, and they were there for the benefit of the people. In other words, they are mentioned in the text because their role was just as important as Ezra's. And they were there for the edification of the body. We're back in the land. God has now made a provision, but now we're back and we're, we're in that place where we want to be a blessing and blessed by God. But how are we not going to end up like we ended up before? Well, we need the Word of God. We need to start learning. The church assembly is the place of learning. It's the place where the revelation of God is declared. And again, I'll unpack this a little bit more later. And we need to be there. And we need to be making sure that we clearly understand the things that we've been taught. Another note, another thing I want to note, this was a time of corporate mourning as well. The people were grieved because as they learned from the, le the word of God, that they were far from where they ought to have been. And this brought conviction. However, this was not how Nehemiah or the Lord wanted the people to leave the assembly so they were reminded that the joy of the Lord is their strength. What they could not do the Lord can do in his strength. And this is what it is. I mean, sometimes you can come to church and you can even feel intimidated to come to church because, man, I know my life isn't right. But the reality is, is that what we are endeavoring to do as the assembly of God is to make you leave better than you came in. And there may be repentance, but the reality was is that the joy of the Lord will ultimately be our strength. What you can fail to do, we need to now rely on God. And that's the message ultimately we want to go, which is the gospel. What you may be struggling to do, the Lord has done. And as you rest in that, you will find that all that good works will follow from a heart of thankfulness. Notice that there was also sharing of food. That fellowship, this whole idea there. And again, what we see throughout the Word of God is that pattern of God providing food and not just the Word. This was a place where the whole body was ministered to. Holistic worship. Are you hungry, brother? Have you got something to eat as you go back home? Again, remember what James warned us about. that. Oh, I just, we're just here to provide spiritual food. That's all we're about, and you know, and if you're looking for anything else, and again, remember what I said, it's, it's that we can't, we've got to wrestle with that tension in it of John 6. God feeds the people, but he also gives them the word. He says, also seek the word. And we can get to that extreme where it's like, I'm giving you the word, what more do you want from me? The place of worship is holistic. You are body, and you are soul, and in that sense, a mind within that soul. And we want to make you administer to all of those needs. And so this is why we exist. And this is exactly what is happening with Nehemiah. Feed people. Not just with the word. But with real food. But this, 
Again, one of the reasons why we need the Word of God. Look at this. Note that at the end, the festival of booze was not celebrated since the time of Joshua. Can you imagine, like 800 years have passed and a major festival was not celebrated, was lost in history. For all the revivals that we saw, the, the, the Josiah revivals, the, Hel, the, the Hezekiah you know, revivals, the David revivals, this was not recovered. The festival was to serve as a reminder to the people of God's provision for them during the wilderness years. It was build a tent for yourself to remind you of your humble beginnings. This would have been especially important for them to observe as they lived in the land and it would have helped them to be reminded from year to year that it was by the grace of God they got there. And that was lost in history because there was no reading of the word. There was no connection with the word of God. Again, we might look at Similarly, what we do in January, our time of fasting and prayer is that point where we want to be, remember who we are, the humble beginnings, that we were living without the, the word of God and we were making our material lives more important than everybody else and then we take the opportunity to say, actually, I am spirit. I'm born again in Christ. I need to I rely on that for a while. Let me jump to application. I was listening to this comment. It was interesting, isn't it, about the decline of the church. And this is what someone said. We go to banks for finances, to sort out our finances. We go to grocers to buy food. But what do we come to church for? You know, as we see dwindling attendances and all the rest of it, it seems that over the ages, especially in the UK, the church has lost its importance and seems more and more irrelevant. What do, why do I go there again for? I believe that the age in where we have, we are living in an age where we have lost the mystique of the assembled church. I believe that this is, in great part, to the ongoing repercussions of the Reformation. Now, I don't say that in any small way, and I wish I could unpack that and have a, another hour to, to do that. But it is because of the Reformation. The swing from an autonomous clergy to an autonomous laity has meant that we inherit a similar corruption to what we've had before. But it's on the other side now. Instead of bishops and popes and kings believing that, the only, that they are only answerable to God, we now have individual believers assume that they are only answerable to God and are suspicious of all forms of religion or organized religion. And so we've lost the balance of the importance of the clergy and the balance between the laity. 
Yes, before the Reformation, they had all the power. They're the ones who could absolve you. They were the ones that could tell you what to do and all the rest of it. But that swing to the autonomous believer has brought a similar corruption. And then we're all suspicious. Oh, well, you know, or this organ, you know, I can know God for myself. And that, even in that, that, that very phrase itself reveals something that was never, is never true. Because in a sense, you may be called as an individual, but remember, it's within the church body that you are established as the community of God. Like I said, I wish I could unpack that more, and, but that's a history lesson. But as we saw last week, the revelation proclaimed at Sinai was, was not available anywhere. If you missed Sinai, you missed it. If you were halfway between Egypt and Sinai, you missed it. You may have saw the lights in the distance, but you missed it. This was also true of the tabernacle and then the temple that was established in Jerusalem. This was not to say that the people of God were not the people of God when they were at home. But what we see in the biblical narrative is safety being in the gathered assembly of God's people. Most important to this assumption is the fact that revelation is given in the gathered assembly that is not given outside of it. Now, this is not to say that you can't have an immensely impactful Bible study at home. Lord knows we do. And this is what I'm saying, that loss of mystique. That there is something about the gathered people where God is itching to speak to his people in a way that he cannot speak to them or speak to us on our, by ourselves. There may be certain exceptions to the rule where it's seemingly that the, the overflow of God's presence, and again, Numbers 11, 26 to 30 talks about how two of the elders that didn't make it to the tent somehow spilled out and the blessings of the Lord spoke through them. But again, that is to assume that, well, that can happen anywhere. God can, 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 how can have a supernatural encounter with God anywhere? Which again is true, but isn't the point. We must remember that Christianity is a supernatural faith that, believe, that believes that God is intrinsically involved in our authentic worship. As we saw last week, we're engaged in a mystical worship that is experienced firstly in faith. So remember what the writers of Hebrews said in 11:22 um, to 24. Let me recap that for you. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So yeah, we haven't come to Sinai, but we have come to this heavenly gathering. We're engaged in a mystical experience, a supernatural experience.
But there is so much more in the New Testament canon that also builds on this idea of the, the presence of God being concealed from the physical senses but revealed to the eyes of faith. Again, you know, Rob will take you through this next week. Matthew 8, 20. Let me just mention that. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Let me read that. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, nor neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. That whole idea of the presence, entering into the presence of God, we're in a supernatural religion that believes that we are not just merely coming into an empty room where there is nothing much going on, but as each comes, we are drawing the Spirit of God to our attention, and He is here with us in a way that we shouldn't neglect because as the Writer says, the day is drawing near. Also, let's turn to, you know, look at 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God, of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, I mean, there's so much more I could go to about the whole idea of the church being a manifestation of the gifts of God. That as we come together, the gifts of God start to meld and clash together and create a wonderful experience, an experience we cannot have at home. In our modern times, it, we're quite used to, to terms such as working from home now, especially after the, post, you know, the pandemic. Home cinema. Nando's at home or Pizza Express at home. I believe we are somewhat aware that there are some things we cannot accomplish at home as well as we can do together. As we look at these things and say, yeah, I mean, I mean I'm not going to go to the cinema anymore. I've got all the setup at home. And you've got the cinemas telling you, you can't have this at home. Come to the cinema. Even the whole idea, I mean, I reckon I make a better Nando's at home than Nando's itself. I have to be honest with you. But it's the experience of being away, isn't it? When you're in your yard, you're in your yard. 
But when you're in that restaurant, it's, it's that whole idea of feeling that you're in a special occasion. Like I said, these things will vary. I guess even now the jury's out on whether working from home is going to be more productive than working within the office. There's so many things we can debate. But one thing I don't want us to debate is the mystique of the, the gathered people of God. The fact that we believe and that as we come, we are believing that the presence of God is going to be here in a way that I cannot get elsewhere. Lest it be another church congregation, obviously. Let me end on this. Praise the Lord. That's an hour, but praise God. One free free. Our Psalms, one free free. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.